Before there was the On Fires, the master in training would start shaping his voice in genres he'd rarely, if ever, was associated with. It's the tale of Ringo Lam, and this is the director series on his debut, Esprit d'Amour. And welcome back to the Director Series 20, and uh, this is uh, not merely me sitting here, the show has been uh, on a hiatus because uh, good old Tom has been living his life, but it's been a podcast void and an empty space here without you, Tom, but the Director Series is back, and you are back, and uh, welcome back. Yeah, guten tag, my friend. It's good to be. It's good to be back. Just dropping a bit of German on you there. Just thought I'd switch things up. You know, the usual hellos, alright, it's getting a bit boring, I thought, you know, we want to... Be a bit more cutting edge, Ken. You've spent the last six months being um, uh, being educated culturally. That's, it sounds that's like. My, yeah, that's my German experience. I went to the autobahn. I know some stuff now. Yeah, me and Kraftwerk are tight. You know what I mean. So uh, that was nice for me. Yeah, but that's the only word I, I learned. So a bit of a slow learner, unfortunately. <laughs> Kraftwerk weren't impressed. I spent three years um, in school um, with German. Nothing stuck. I would have loved for it to stick because then I could see all those uh, German-only dubbed martial arts movies uh, and stuff like that. Where That's the only reason, yeah, the only reason. To... <laughs> and they they would be well dubbed, you know. Even the crappy martial arts movies, sometimes they spend some efforts on making the German dubs you like like well performed because it's the we dub everything, so it needs to be good. Like, like you, you, you surely know this. Like where for the big stars, the Hollywood stars, you know, your Mel Gibson's Clint Eastwood back in the day, they had their own dubber most of the time, and these guys were revered. Yeah, stars of their own country a lot of the time. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the, there's nothing um, to poo poo on in terms of uh, yeah. German German dubbing. Poo-poo. Is that German? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> But uh, nevertheless, I uh, wonder if Ringo Lam has a following in Germany. I'm sure he has to a degree because he's a world famous director. Please but, write in German fans. Have we got any German fans? I'm sure we have uh, one or two listeners. So thank you very much, whoever you are who's listening. Let's uh, get into it. Uh, this is uh, we got three movies to cover as you'll hear, and um, uh, so it's not not just Esprit de more, but uh, two more, as I'll tell you off in a little bit. But we'll do the contact information first. And this is the director series on the Podcast on Fire network. We are located on podcastonfire.com. You have plenty of shows over there to choose from, whether uh, Hong Kong cinema, Japanese cinema, Korean cinema, sleazy or ninja cinema is to your uh, taste, then we have the show for you, I suppose. And then we have audio commentaries and bonus episodes on there as well. Email us if you have any questions or feedback, podcastonfire at googlemail.com and follow us on our social media. We have some handy buttons at the top of our website. The first one leads to our Facebook page. And uh, leave a like in support. And when you're there, uh, why don't you just type in Podcast on Fire Network and you'll find the discussion group as well. So join and uh, see the updates and uh, interact with other very well, uh, well, uh, good-natured members. It's not a big, uh, a big uh, trolling spot. Thankfully, no, we, for we... sure, some good, some good combo. And uh, click the Twitter button to follow to follow our tweets. Uh, click the iTunes uh, button to subscribe to our feed. Leave a star rating if you like, and even a written comment that would be ever so lovely. And finally, stream us on Stitcher Radio. Uh, the button will lead to their website. And uh, you'll find our shows over there, but uh, they also have an application on the Apple App Store and Google Play if you want to stream us on the go. 
And I write about a variety of Hong Kong movies and Taiwanese movies over at SoGoodReviews.com. Ringo has been reviewed every now and again. Not all his movies, mind you, but I'm um, slowly getting there. I think I've seen most. Would you say that he was he was a star, Ringo? <coughs> anyway, uh, SoGoodReviews.com, and that's my written work. And uh, if you fancy listening to some small video reviews, uh, audio uh, spoken audio reviews uh, over at SleazyKVideo.com, then go over there and my tweets are over at twitter at so good reviews uh have you been busy at all with writing the last six months or there's been other priorities uh over over there in life country? yeah there's been a lot more priorities in uh yeah in, in the life zone uh last few months so looking forward to getting back in the saddle but if you want to see previous uh bad jokes <laughs> more bad jokes, uh head on head on over to there no it's very very serious uh, uh, V Cinema, very serious uh, site, very uh, professional site. So not like this guy's a podcast I buy. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's a lot more serious and <laughs> professional over there. You know the amateurs that we are over here. It's uh... well, well, from from V Cinema show, I learned the following things: uh, like small tale of life, and then small tale of reading an article on vcinemashow.com. dot com. I, I passed my, by my local bookstore on the way to the cinema a couple of weeks back, and uh, I just sort of did a double take. I saw something very studio ghibli in look like a big uh, marquee nice what it was you know the author astrid lindgren the swedish author who wrote uh, people Longstocking and things like that she also did something called ronja the robber's daughter and it's been a t- tv show and i think a movie uh, based on a tv show but they've re-envisioned that in ghibli form like in anime form there's apparently mm-hmm. a tv series and uh, now there's you know presumably an illustrated book as well based on the tv show but it looks so uh, natural uh, for the artist at Ghibli to re-envision, because it's not, it's a period piece, right? So it's not mm. like uh, a Swedish tale, you know, Swedish suburbia or whatever, no, no, no. no. no, no. And uh, so, uh, and then like the day after the same night, I saw that article on vcinemashow.com and got like, oh, wow, that's cool. I can totally see that working. For sure, for sure. So yeah, I think good some more for, you know, news and uh well, rather, you know, news, rather more kind of the latest film reviews and the kind of info on the latest stuff. It's definitely... And you're part of the writing staff as well, so... Uh, yeah, I uh, I dabble. Uh, righty, let's uh, do the rundown of what's to come here. We kick off the director series again uh, with some intent to provide history and context. And indeed, we have some uh, different sections coming up. And you'll find the running times in the show post in case you want to skip ahead to any section. And they are as follows. First, we talk to man Ringo Lamb and his career in our biography segment. And uh, this is then followed by quick reviews of the movies that uh, two movies that follow Desperate D'Amour, The Other Side of Gentleman and Cupid One. And then we conclude matters with our main review of Esprit d'Amour. I could have picked some other movie, but I always believe in starting with the very, very first, when we start a new series. Whether they worked fully on them or not, which is actually the case. Which Esprit d'Amour, Ringo Lam didn't work on all of it. But we'll tell that story in a little bit. So yeah, Tom, let's uh, talk to man, and uh, feel free to um, interject and uh, give some personal uh, notes if you like throughout the biography. Of course. So here we go. Director, producer, and writer Ringo Lam was born in Hong Kong in 1955. He initially didn't set out to direct and um, to be on that path only, as he in 1973 enrolled in the TVB's acting training program, and TVB was the television division of the Shaw Brothers Studio. He didn't get uh, further in the program. I'm sure they have like different layers and stuff before they shoot you, you know, offering to TV land and stuff, and you have to, mm. you know, graduate probably. Uh, but he did strike up uh, what turned out to be a long-lasting friendship with another actor by the name of Chow Yun Fat. 
Yeah, Amanchao is his English name, as you well know. <laughs> was it him or Yumbu that was called Donald as well? Yeah, there was no. Bill, no, Bill was Bill. Bill. And uh, in fact, I think I've heard like once, um, once maybe he had the English name Donald attached to him, but I only know know him as Amanchao. Amanchao. Mm, ciao. But uh, nevertheless, being young, the two, uh, the two men, they apparently often hit the town to drink and one time apparently got into trouble with local hoodlums uh, where they were subsequently forced to drink their own urine out of, uh, out of bottles. So presumably, I mean, hoping. <laughs> I hope they didn't get to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wasn't it, wasn't it direct source, no? No, I hope not. Dear God. Uh, it's horrible enough. And th- this was an incident told to John Woo eventually who put that story... Um, you know, into a better tomorrow, where Chai Fat's character of Mark tells of a past story, and in one of the cutscenes from Bullet in the Head later on, we see that scenario in more in more detail. Which is now fully integrated into the film, isn't it? On the latest blue. Uh, I don't know what the blue was like. The DVD attempted some uh, f- uh, seamless branching be- because the extra scenes are still from an old um, print, uh, yeah. uh, print source. There's no like original negative that no uh, that they use anyway. I'm sure original negative exists somewhere, but people are working off dupes in terms of the extended scenes in uh, Bullet in the Head. Taiwanese VHS, I think it was possibly it was it was come from, but there's definitely a, a, a substantial difference between the two when it jumps back and forth. And, and I mean, there is a continuity flaw in Bullet in the Head uh, with that scene missing. Uh, actor Lam Chung, who's the boss that says, uh, you're, you're going to drink the pee and stuff. A lot of things happen and all of a sudden you see him all drenched and slimed looking. And indeed he had, in the cutscene, Tony Long or whoever uh, poured a bottle of pee all over him. And then they, they ha- hold him at gunpoint. So there's a big continuity flaw with that missing. But uh, hey, hey ho. Uh, so that's a uh, linger with, uh, with John, uh, definitely. Uh, Ringo Lam did get a few jobs uh, behind the scenes as production assistant for TVB, but uh, feeling there was no room to develop creatively, he emigrated to Canada to attend York University's film school. After seemingly not completing his studies, I mean, he he said he was very eager and he found uh, education too slow. He wanted to make and create. So he returned to Hong Kong in 1981 and he arrived at a time in the industry where there was Western education behind um, young early creative and long-lasting voices in Hong Kong. We, we had a new wave at that time uh, with more grit and gloss, uh, let's just say. And, uh, you know, we, we, people like uh, Choi Hak and An Hoi and uh, those uh, late 70s, early 80s uh, movies. It's always, it's always interesting. I, I re-watched um, Choi Hak's The Butterfly Murders just the other day. Nice. Be, nice. Be, I mean, it's a sword play movie, it's a Wu Shapian, but it still looks and feels way different coming from a different perspective who's not adhering to just the same old fantasy shit you know he, he there's a there's just uh, i i'm i have this idea well you're allowed to do it i want to be stylish this way instead yeah, rather than just yeah. the colorful shaw brothers stuff so it was it was like they were took uh, in the new wave took established genres and kind of put their own spin on it whether it be fantasy or you know and hoy with with, with the, the dramas or you know with the more kind of um gritty you know thrillers and stuff it was, it was a fantastic time for for young filmmakers putting their their own spin on you know established genres i mean granted the butterfly Brothers is not very easy to comprehend it's just, it's just one of those stories but it's super fantastic and cool to uh, to look at and uh, yeah, great visuals and, and even Anne Hoy um, they were not great um, movies uh, the early ones but they're, they're 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 very interesting i mean i saw the spooky bunch 
which sounds goofy, but it is actually a fairly documentary in feel spooky story. But it uh, it felt a little anonymous. Uh, that style didn't break through. It felt like the co- coherence was a little bit low, but uh, I could definitely see a different vibe from that new wave, even in that one. Yeah, for sure, for sure. All of that content and style, that wasn't what made up Ringo Lamb's debut movie, Esprit d'Amour, however. It, it isn't angry, but it's a, go, it's a ghost story, and it was partly helmed by the director of Hong Kong 1941, Leung Po Chi. And uh, after this agreement between Leung and the production, the Ringo Lamb was brought on board to finish about two-thirds of the movie, according to uh, Wikipedia. And uh, producer Carl Mackay, was a Cinema City movie, said he needed cheap replacement. And Lamb, in turn, has said, I did what I could. A valiant effort. For, for yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's fair. I mean, you're, you're brought in, into something that you didn't uh, spearhead from the beginning. So, uh, But um, he ultimately received sole directing credit as well. And uh, furthermore, two romantic films followed, The Other Side of Gentleman and Cupid One. And that was all before. Like, uh, this is not the recognizable Ringola, necessarily. Like, uh, Cupid One, The Other Side of Gentleman. What's that? Alan Tam, who's that? Team Tam, not Team Tam. Uh, but, but he landed a big hit when tapped. <laughs> <laughs> he landed a big hit when tapped for directing Aces Go Places 4 which was already an established and successful action comedy franchise from Cinema City and co-starring Carl Macca. And um, Lamb may have said that he did it as a favor to Carl Macca because he gave him a shot, so very respectful. But the film still bears traits of darkness that was new for the series, but not unheard of coming from Ringo Lamb, considering what happened next in that filmography. And essentially we're at in 1987 and uh, the classic City on Fire. And that would be a you know a crime thriller that would become a genuine classic very quickly and still is. And it put the director on the map. It was a decent hit, not a big one, but it uh, it won him Best Director Prize at the Hong Kong Film Awards. And uh, while it did have Chai and Fat and A Better Tomorrow had established the action gangster genre via John Woo. As you well know, Tom, Ringo's take was darker. Ringo's take was grittier. Far more violent and impactful to the degree that Quentin Tarantino used the skeleton of the movie, certain key scenes and imagery, as he crafted his debut, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, very different, very different filmmaker now, uh, in terms of the way he approaches material and characters and story. Um, you know, I think it's it's probably unfair to lump him in with with Wu. Similar, I mean, similar in terms of genres, but you know, completely different filmmakers. The way they they approach the material, they, they are. I mean, it was nice to experience that early on, being that I saw those TV shows I've talked about of a variety of John's movies and then one of the first five tapes I bought for myself included City on Fire. Nice. So as I got that taste early on that Giant Fat is a different actor here and the style is different. Oh my god, that is dark. He got shot in the head that poor security guard. Man, it, this is no fun anymore. Yeah, I think I said I think I said before possibly I don't know what show but I think it's it's I don't know whether it's Shane Fett's best film but it's arguably one of if not his best performance. I'm more uh, weak for Wild Search that he did with Ringo. Good call. Uh, yeah, yeah, good but call. Uh, absolutely good call on your behalf as well. And uh, yeah, the On Fires started and uh, we move on to to another one of the On Fires and the tense grueling um you know from script to completed ed- edit production that was prison on fire 
earned him probably due to a tight sort of tight restriction placed on the cast and crew by Ringo Lam. He got the nickname Dark Faced God. How cool is that, really? Like, I mean, that is sort of like, hey, Ringo, what? Breathing fire. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, and apparently he's still known uh, by that still. So, I've heard he's uh, not this like. Whenever you do get him for interviews, it's not this like, hey, 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 I'm here now. Hey, hey, what's going on? And I make those movies. They're dark, but I'm, hey, 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 I'm Mr. Potty. No, he's, he's, um, he's, he can be, um, difficult one to get, um, the vibe from, I've heard. He, he's not a bad guy, but he's not, uh, Mr. Like, it's so easy to be around him and hear him. <laughs> no, exactly. It's, uh, <laughs> Kirk is definitely a little bit more happy go lucky, it seems like. But, uh, uh it, uh, Prisoner of Fire, that is. It was still a hit for Lamb, despite those, uh, the, the sort of new nickname and the uh, tight restrictions. And, uh, he moved on to his, uh, political and violent drama, School on Fire, in 1988. But by now, critics and audiences were divided. Some felt School on Fire glamorized the tried lifestyle, which I think is horseshit. There was nothing glamorizing about that. Who wants to live that life? <laughs> no, who wants to be Roy Chung in that movie? No one really. I mean, it's, it's ugly through and through. Uh, some thought it wasn't violent enough, which is also horseshit. <laughs> Have you seen the movie, man? <laughs> Unless you watched one of the versions that was like 60, 70 minutes long because censors went at this movie, School on Fire, that is making it probably the shortest of Ringo Lamb's career in some territories. They just cut up chunks of it. I mean, Singapore, Malaysia might have had that 60, 70 minute version or whatever. If you threw in a few people getting killed, I think that would make the film better. You know what I mean? I think that's what it lacked was a bit more, you know, murders um, and violence, to be honest. You know what I mean? Quite vanilla for... <laughs> yeah, for vanilla. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it once, and I have um, I have the tape that... That, that was actually a Tai Seng tape. No one knew that. Uh, so I have a copy of the Tai Seng tape that actually has some of the footage that was cut out of uh, the Hong Kong print. Um, there's a death scene at the end where someone uh, gets impaled, right? And you never see that in the Hong Kong version, but that version has the impact, for instance, and, and a few more stuff, so... Is it hit blue yet, or is it still just DVD? Uh, not sure. Not sure if in Hong Kong, maybe, other, uh, maybe in other territories, but it's still a fortune star title, so you never know if they're even gonna allow um, a HD print to be uh, to to be had for whatever company is interested in it. But um, but yes, uh, after School on Fire. He, he was angry clearly Ringo was and after a more mel he, he, he like went into a more mellow state and a more romantic state because he made uh, either you call it a retake or a remake or an interpretation of uh, Peter Weir's Witness in the form of Wild Search which is my favorite Ringo Lamb movie I just think it's a wonderful merger of underplayed natural romance and genuine like uh, police procedural and danger and giant fat and cherry chung is like of course an autumn's tale is the high standard yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, i yeah. i i think this is as good if not better because uh, yeah. it's uh, just um it's not like plastic movie romance you know no, it's, no, it's no. very real and uh, my god uh, for 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 people who work that damn much including giant fat to just go in there and manage to squeeze out this performance this fight is just uh pitch perfect yeah, fantastic chemistry as well between the two. I'd, I'd say it was kind of inspired by, well, by Witness, yeah, rather than copied kind of wholeheartedly. Exactly. I mean, uh, he, um, Quinton would do that, so to say, to Ringo, and I don't think Ringo ever had any problems with uh, Reservoir Dogs, and no one really should have. I mean, it's not a lazy remake. Quinton established a different vibe and aura to his first movie. 
that yes has those iconic scenes sort of replicated but there's so much of his own stuff or, or influences from elsewhere i mean there's no one that gets his ear cut off in reservoir in incident on fire and it's just a unique vibe that still it still remains my favorite quentin movie out of the ones i've seen to be honest i just think yeah i like i like actors talking man i, I love actors talking i love a one setting sometimes one setting movie sometimes uh, like glenn gary glenn ross often set in one room man in total i think it's like free <laughs> free yeah. settings and i just love it when actors go at it back and forth back and forth and for a young filmmaker and a debut director to manage to get that right no wonder that makes it my favorite of his movies still i think it's i think i like it the most because it's the, probably the least tarantino-esque <laughs> and as he goes through his career and gets more kind of tarantino uh i kind of tend to like him less but yeah i think that it stands as as, as arguably his best film and uh, moving on to Ringo Lam, he got to direct Cinema City's stab at international exposure using talent from the East and West uh, in Undeclared War, which included cars from Hong Kong uh, in the form of Danny Lee, Tommy Wong, but also Olivia Hussey and uh, Commandos, Vernon Wells. <laughs> it's like, is that him? I think that that's him from Commando, isn't it? Like, it's sort of a guy who was hot for Arnold in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> 100% inspired by uh, Hannibal out of A-Team, without, without a doubt in my mind the, the thing is we'll get to it in subsequent episode but uh, Undeclared War flopped and something Cinema City never recovered from and it's not that great of a movie to be honest it's uh, I like it as a well that's novel but otherwise it's pretty average to be honest I had so much fun watching that movie maybe for reasons not to do with quality but <laughs> it's, I still had a lot of, I still had a good time I mean, there's nothing wrong having Olivia Hussey in there. I mean, my God, but uh, and and as like he directs his westerners, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the western direction either. It's just I don't know. I found it bland. I really did. Yeah, and, uh, it's nothing amazing, but I, I think it's it's just a really good time. Cool. Well, maybe I'll, I'll reevaluate because uh, now I'm older and a lot more stupid. So I'm like, oh, movie thumb, movie thumb, very fun. Well, maybe we should talk about it. I wish we had some kind of, I don't know, uh, place we could we could talk about movies, Ken, for people to listen to. I don't, maybe we should, you know, look into that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'll have to get into the think tank <laughs> and see what we come up with. Yeah, we'll uh, brainstorm about that, man. Yeah. yeah. And uh, anyway, back to Ringo Lam. He also, at this time or a year after, or whatever, uh, got himself into hot water um, by commenting publicly on the on the emotions in the wake of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Essentially saying, "Enough's enough. Let's move on from what's being said." So that's not necessarily uh, the most um, sensitive thing to say after such a horrible event. You don't forget that event in a week or a year or ever. So his company and himself received death threats, and he fled to Singapore to weather the storm at that point. Um, therefore, he was not easily employable at, at, at that time, uh, you know, because of his personal honesty, you know, his unfiltered uh, nature. But his good friend Chaimfat vouched for him, and Lam continued to work, uh, logging the violent and stylized action hit Full Contact in 1992. Which is uh, it's going to be great return to that. I like Full Contact. I know Chow doesn't really... Like it because his character is so bad, but um, it, because they're all bad guys in the movie, right? Um, yeah, it's never really clicked for me. I, it's fun, but I've seen it a handful of songs now, but it's never really clicked for me the rest of his work. I think it, it it should be very offensive, but somehow it it straddles the line. I mean, Simon Yam, if he would have been comically flamboyant, maybe that would have been more offensive, but he's this 
dangerous gay character yeah. and it just Dude, he's the best thing about it for sure he, he makes it fun he makes it fun and there's yeah. some classic subtitles to talk of as well in that one and uh, he moved on and they uh, making movies it's it's a risky venture he, he, so you never know how things are going to turn out even if the movies are critically acclaimed and he got um, uh, money financing to be put into um, the eventually acclaimed martial arts movie burning paradise which mm-hmm. is a movie with the character of Fong Sai-yuk, but it's uh, it's not a comedy. It's it's not in the Jet Li style. Obviously, it doesn't star Jet Li either. But it's a dark, dark atmospheric uh, swordplay movie. But it was a major flop with audiences. So, uh, mm. there's, so the night is fairly rocky. I mean, even a reportedly uneasy working relationship uh, with uh, Andy Lau followed uh, as. Uh, as he worked with him on The Adventurers. And uh, Lam was uh, publicly <laughs> shooting his mouth off again, saying he didn't like working with Andy Lau. I don't know what the quote was. So I shouldn't say if he went to the reporters and said, Andy Lau, or if he, if he was being like Anthony Wong, talking of John Woo, saying that I don't think John understands actors and I didn't really like working with him. Like, it's it's sort of perfect honesty. So Yeah, I think he went to the papers and said, when Andy Lau gets up, he hasn't got perfect hair in the morning. And everyone was like, what? Typey, 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 typey. He was like losing their minds. Also a bit of an, an average film, uh, The Adventurous, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Look forward to getting to it, mate, yeah. Ringo Lam followed in the tradition of Hong Kong directors getting a chance to work in Hollywood after John Woo and Choi Hak had done so. And the end result was um, also a tradition that each Hong Kong director works, works with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. And this uh, vehicle was maximum risk. But uh, poor reviews and not enough box office sort of closed the chapter on Ringo Lam working internationally for now. Plus, at the time, he wasn't very fond of JCVD. And he went on record saying so again. So Yeah, but still went on to work with him. So For the moment, yeah. I, I think they re-evaluated their working relationship quite a bit in the future, and it shows on screen. Maximum Risk was one of those movies that... Uh, well, what? It, ha- it happened? I watched that? Okay. I think I watched it. That's the only memory I have of it, man. Really, I remember it being really fun, but I might be confusing it. There was a lot of very similar films, uh, you know, around that kind, that kind of era in the nineties. But I remember it being a lot of fun. But I don't know whether at the time I knew it was directed by Ringo when I first saw it. So it'd be interesting going back to it and reevaluating. Absolutely, it. absolutely. I, ha- I haven't seen it since. Uh, it probably turned up like like two or three years later on TV. So that was probably when I saw it, or, or on video. Yeah, same. It was also re-edited without uh, Ringo Lam's approval. He didn't have final cut. And uh, he would go back to Hong Kong for a part very splendid run, that including the Cat and Mouse Cops and Robbers thriller Full Alert, starring Lao Ching Wan and Francis. And a great flirt with spooky horror with Victim, starring uh, Lao Ching Wan again. So uh, those were like two, I still got it, movies. Yeah. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah, of course. It's he's, he's showing that he still, yeah, still had it after, you know, flirting with... Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And uh, back to the working relationship with um, Jean-Claude Van Damme, they reunited in um, in the new millennium, in new phases of their careers. And in my opinion, uh, the Lamb-JCVD combo finally got done right. Uh, with uh, I don't know if they did more than these two movies, but it's the one I watched. Uh, uh, the first one they did as they reunited was the sci-fi movie Replicant. And also the prison movie in hell. But yeah, in hell's good, man. In hell's in hell's good. Yeah, in hell's good. Jean Claude has said that he, Ringo knows what to bring out the best in me. He he ha- he can tap me in that sort of uh, way that no one else has really tried. And ring and Jean Claude was ready to act differently as well. He wasn't constrained to like doing Jean Claude stuff. Yeah, 
I think that's what I've always liked about Jean-Claude is that he's always wanting to, you know, he's never afraid to kind of ridicule his own, you know, his kind of own kind of macho image. He's always, especially in the last few years, he's always kind of willing to play the clown and to kind of... And even that series that uh, was uh, picked up by Amazon, uh, Jean-Claude Van Johnson, apparently is excellent. Um, so, um, and, he's done and... a lot. He's done, like, did the reality show a few years ago as well, which was the same thing. It really kind of humanized him uh you know and obviously jcvd as well uh you know really kind of playing himself so i mean i mean after falling i think hopefully many people get uh they get enlightened about what they did wrong uh, like what the path i i should be uh, walking on what that's supposed to be like so i think maybe there's a blessing that sean claude was that big he had that personal fall that he did i think uh was it drugs he was involved in was yeah, yeah yeah i think he was yeah cocaine he, he, he was kind of a suffering with an addiction to that in the kind of uh the back end of the 90s and i think he split from his wife around the same time so yeah he was going through some shit but i i, I think he's very self-aware i think it's nice he can kind of put down his personality and collaborate you know with someone and mix it up a bit so i think that's what's kept his career alive to be honest mm-hmm. well ringo lamb has been very active uh, since uh, i mean he chose he chose to spend time with his family and uh, he, he felt you know pretty negative towards the filmmaking environment in hong kong ringo hasn't seemingly gone up to china as such yet anyway but he did emerge to direct a third of the movie triangle which was a yeah, continuous I've seen that. yeah it's okay, but we'll we'll, we'll get to it. Uh, he, he um, it's a continuous story where where the other thirds that were directed by Choi Hark and Johnny Toe. See, that is a dream team, but the thought of three people directing separate, you know, it, it's okay. But uh, I, I remember liking Johnny Toe's bit, uh, which is the last third, a bit a bit more because it it was very Johnny Toe, but still not amazing Johnny Toe. But it, we we'll get to it. It's worth worth a watch. Uh, but uh, Ringo has. Like logged two movies uh, two years in a row by now. Uh, uh, he came back to direct 2015's Wild City, starring Sean Yu and Louis Ku. And now, at the time of uh, recording, just now I saw a trailer for Sky on Fire, which is coming out at the end of November 2016. We're at the end of October 2016, and this is a... F- decent looking thriller based on the trailer which says nothing really to me it, it's just a trailer okay well, as long as something's on fire then <laughs> we should be okay and it stars a daniel Wu, so i guess he's out of his filmmaking hiding now maybe i'll leave this question open to the world maybe he's feeling re-energized maybe he hates everything still but but, but <laughs> needs to put food on the table i don't know I will we'll get to wild city obviously and uh, whether uh, sky on fire has uh, been released on um on a video by the time we uh, get to the end of uh, the series so we'll uh, we'll uh, pick up that ball and uh, continue talking of it then i think the trailer for wild city did not appeal to me at all but i think we will uh it's been it's been you know a while since i've seen it so i think maybe go into it without watching the trailer just go into it fresh because i remember thinking it's like i don't know about this but but tra- trailers are so rarely well cut to especially to, nowadays, to trigger yeah, curiosity just... for me i mean there's so few I watched some, uh, I, I just thought of one example that, yeah, that's the way to sell that damn movie. And knowing what the movie is about and cutting it in tune with the movie. There's a Korean movie called Going by the Book. It's um, a comedy about uh, a cop in a small town who does everything by the book. Everything, everything, everything. He, he even gives his uh, police chief a parking ticket because he did drive too fast. 
but <laughs> he still salutes him and stuff. And they put on a fake um, fake robbery to uh, as, as a training exercise, right? Mm. And uh, they chose him to be the robber. And the thing is, he's a really good cop, meaning he's also going to be a very good robber. And he's going to take that seriously. And uh, it's a funny-ass movie. And the trailer really reflects this perfectly. So sometimes they uh, they know how to cut in tune with uh, with uh, with the movie at hand. I think that's the one with Jung Jae-young, isn't it? I've been wanting to see yes. that for a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've wanted to see that for And it's a, a short one, too. It's a 100-minute movie. It's not. The, it's set in, like, a few locations as well, main one being a bank. So, yeah. So let's do the quick text, then. And these are movies that came off the Esprit more, but they will want to get this money many movies so get, get as much money out of this uh, series uh, by... are you making money off this uh, I wish if you know struggling for work and you just you kept that a secret that's that's fucked up like like it's me and Kevin Smith that gets like money making podcasts like uh, we have a, we have a two ones monetizing this shit but no we want to cover as many uh, Ringo Lam movies as possible so we move on to two ones that came after Spritta Moore and the first one that we're gonna talk very briefly of is to call The Other Side of Gentleman and uh, I'll leave it to Tom to give us uh, his brief take on this Alan Tam Bridget Lynn romantic vehicle Matt the man Tam sorry man sorry Tammy sorry team Tam but this was bad and real bad just a lifeless film 90 minutes of Alan Tam committing fashion crimes yep <laughs> Dude, just very, very bland across the board. Like, the acting, the plot, the story is bizarre. Yeah, I mean, I should really tell you all this story because it is bizarre. Like, uh, Bridget Lynn plays someone called Jojo, and she's with a group of intellectuals that are about to perform this sociological experiment where they set up her with carefree jeans salesman slash plastic jacket fan Alan played <laughs> by Alan Tam curtain fan. <laughs> Alan and they're, they're basically gonna direct the relationship and along the way she begins having doubts and she develops feelings for Alan Tam blah 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 so that and it is bizarre but okay it's a new angle but that's not interesting it's just yeah it's just it's just really daft like there's just and it's okay you can have a terrible you know kind of a bizarre plot if it had some fun scenes it's just there's nothing fun about it at all like I really I mean, I've got similar complaints here as I've got with our main film, but I think at least our main film has got a lot of kind of, you know, visual, interesting things going on. I mean, visually, this is just dull, so there's not really any saving grace, you know, for me here, to be honest, especially the ending as well. I think at this point in his career, and I don't know whether it's just because of he's taken over projects or there's he hasn't got his own you know, his own kind of artistic vision yet, but Lamb cannot end a film for shit. Like, like with his, with his first few films, cannot, you know, end a film, really struggles to kind of come up with an ending that, that works. Yeah, he's, he's attempting darkness and melodrama, It's very, um, but it's uh, it's pretty much uh, questionable across uh, across the board here in the first few movies, indeed. I mean, he, he's, uh, he's in early, early development, and uh, this is a project of light proportions, he's a working director, and he delivered the film, but... The end result is it's a step down from the partly entertaining debut, and uh, but it's completely empty in all areas of romance and comedy. I mean, yeah. it comes up so painfully short, and uh, and it, at best it's a showcase commercially for its star Alan Tan, but it, it's not at the same time because he's not compelling. This is why I hate him, people. This is why I hate Alan Tan. He brings nothing. I love. Him in the winners with Kenny B, not me, and all of that. But <laughs> I love how that's your catchphrase. <laughs> I can't, I, I can't do it. Otherwise, 
Otherwise, Jay will PM me and saying you didn't say it. <laughs> you didn't say not me. Uh, all well, it's all well and good. But it, what is also well and good is if there was any charisma or sparks between Tam and Bridget Lee, we could have had some bearable stretches. But my God, I mean, she's an icon. I think this is one of her worst movies because she she looks so uninspired. She looks so disinterested. Really bored. It, it does feel like it, almost like a vanity vehicle for Tam. Like it feels like it, it's a sort of projecting kind of people, his stardom, kind of his his personality as 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 an actor. But there's just there's nothing there. Like there's nothing. Uh, you know, and I like Tam. I'm I'm not I'm not on either side of the fence. I don't love him. I don't. Hey, you got to choose Team Tam and not Team I Sam. Can't, I can't, man. Like, I honestly can't. I mean, if, well, if then you have team... no opinion. <laughs> it's either Team Tam or not Team Tam. Okay, if anything, I'll go with Team Tam, yeah, just because I think he's a genuine, like, you, you know, he's a nice guy, he's a good presence in films, but I think he's never, ever given anything, like, material-wise. He's rarely given something juicy for him. Is it his problem, or is it he's never had some good material? Let me put that to you. Go, go examine Dragon Family again, and you, you'll find that they realise exactly how to use him. He does series well. He also does uh, the unspoken very well, non-verbal very well. So, so yeah, there, there's definitely stuff there. But comedy-wise, there's always um, there's pitfalls there. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I like he, him as uh, Wong Fei Hong, the, the the stupid Wong Fei Hong. I kind of <laughs> like Alan Tam as that. So uh, <laughs> he, he he did two moves as uh, Wong Fei Hong. Uh, it all culminates in a final reel, partly set in a church, and it's downright embarrassing by that point. It's the typical oh, example of characters oh. feeling everything emotionally, but the audience do not feel anything at all. That that final line, that final spiel by him is just just terrible. Man, it, it, it's the performance. It's also what the actual the things he's saying. It just goes borderline into just parody. It goes completely around again from... You know, straight face and earnest, just you know, to kind of over the top into parody. It's it's madness, absolute madness. It was really kind of the the dog shit on on you know on the on the turd ice cream. Just just that you know one of them curly ones, just 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 on top. It was just so. It was just like another layer, of just shit. It was like man, this is bad. This what an ending for an already just dry film. Well, well, well. So, not a uh, recommender. We'll move on to Cupid 1 from 1985, uh, the last of the two quick takes here. But uh, we'll leave it to Tom again to give, uh, give us his uh, brief take on Cupid 1 with uh, Mok Cheng and uh, Salier being directed by Ringo. I think this, for the most part, it's better. It's a better film. For the most part, it's kind of well-written, well-performed, you know, romantic comedy with a dark streak, I'd say. Again, it loses its way in the last act, though. You know, you know, a borderline unlikable Mark Cheng for me. The whole film is kind of just just on the borderline. He finally crosses that border and he just goes insane. And the chemistry that's been built up between him and Salier, which there is, uh, it's just thrown out the window. I mean, speak, speaking of Salier, I think she's she's a star here for me. You know, ringing out kind of cute, sexy, funny moments. You know, what could have been a fairly unlikable role, but the end is a shame yeah because because i mean ringo he's smart he doesn't cut away from the action um on the boat which is kind of where the you know the majority of the film is set for like half an hour and it really helps to build up the romantic tension and the intensity and then it just throws it away at the end and i I was disappointed because i really was sold kind of for the first hour or so and then it just goes out the window again like it just does not you can't come with an ending that feels natural or feels kind of faithful to what's gone before it's it's, it's a, a young weird. filmmaker trying to explore cracks in humanity and darkness but it, it's uh, it's not uh, clicking i mean it's a valid attempt uh, or rather the, the thought is valid to we can inject dark thoughts here but you gotta execute too 
Yeah, I I agree, and it, it's it's I don't, it's because it's not all over. The, I think at this point it's not all over the place for the most part. It genuinely is good and it's well put together for the most part, and it's leading somewhere, and then it's just thrown away at the end again with this just terrible ending. That I don't know what it's supposed to get out of the viewer. Whether it's supposed to get emotional or anger or pissed off, or it's a, it's a hysteria mode that's curious. Um, it it certainly doesn't click. I mean. It's the big first indication of darkness, I suppose, that would come, but it's it's still a choice that is left behind uh, by now, I think. Uh, you know, it's nice, I suppose, to see the filmmaker early on looking for an outlet to explore, as I said, cracks and darkness and humanity, and it serves little by little through his work, and... Uh, and more so in this, uh, like one of his last fluff films, if you will. <laughs> and yeah, he he shows confidence working his uh, two actors, so Mark Cheng and Salie, and uh, she's still in slight Shanghai blues mode to fine effect, which is uh, mm, sure. something I think sure, is delightful. Yeah. And it's a two-man show, and it's not... Uh, Tom said it's a boat. It's not a big ocean liner or anything. It's a small boat. Yeah. It's only them. So that and, and the plot goes through emotion, the emotions you expect. Uh, first, they hate each other, and they want they threaten each other with physical harm, and then there's romance. But there is some edgy atmosphere during brief moments where you think yeah. that they're gonna snap at each other on the boat there, and no one's gonna know. So we're not quite sure what the destruction is. Possibly that will manifest itself, but by the end, for a romantic comedy, essentially that attempt at deep character psychology i might have been more forgiving to it back when i watched it but i don't think it works because it just snaps into a hysteria mode that mm. doesn't work with what's set up before so it doesn't like complete the character arcs and their longing for each other or whatever to be this hysterical and this distressing so it's definitely flawed but a bit more interesting especially because the actors are also very enjoyable so what we didn't have in the other side of gentlemen enjoyable acting we definitely get here yeah, completely, completely agree with what you said, man. So, yes, that's the quick text. Let's move on to the main review. We go back to the debut that he partly helmed, as we said. About two-thirds, whatever two-thirds they are, is Ringo Lambs, and one-third is uh, Lung Po Cheese. But uh, Esprit Amour from 1983, and plot from the Love HK film review of the film. Alan Tam is Ming, a mousy insurance salesman who's whipped by ferocious fiancé Ivy, played by Cecilia Yip. However, despite his impending nuptials slash funeral, <laughs> I thought I was like, ouch! Uh, he finds the time to fall in love with lovely ghost Su Yu, played by Joyce Nye. Ming is assigned to investigate her accidental death, which boss Philip Chan wants classified as a suicide, ergo no insurance payment. However, Su Yu harasses Ming into getting the payment for her beneficiary, a five-year-old uh, neighbor. And not surprisingly, Ming falls for the friendly ghost, but can a ghost and human stay together? That is the ultimate question. That's the question, the answer everyone's been seeking in life. And a quick take from me, it's kind of and mostly weak, but also partly fresh, professional, and it also refuses to be stupid. It's not, it's not, uh, Hong Kong comedy, ghost comedy, we're going to be silly. I think I would have enjoyed it if it was more like that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But it's not a very engaging ghost romance, though. It is also, it's not as bad as as with Bridget Lim, but there's a serious lack of chemistry between Alan Tam and Joyce Nye. And the melodrama is not earned either. Blame Ringo Lam, blame Lung Po Chi. It's still only fairly interesting for the first half. I'd, I'd agree. You know, yeah, I think it's not great, but it's not terrible either i think it doesn't hit the highs of highs of cupid cupid one because i think there's 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 better highs in that film but it doesn't also hit the lows of other side of gentlemen 
So it's kind of somewhere in the middle, really, for me, yeah. of his first three films. But Definitely. Yeah, I think uh, this was nicely directed by Lawrence Taylor Lamb, L.T. Lamb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the English credit is uh, is uh, nice and uh, nice and complete, uh, so to say. And they, you you can sort of see that it isn't. Um, well, you can't really. You experience it later, but it starts. It seems like gloomy. And, uh, you know, the credits are gloomy. And we get arty, interpretive, freaky dons in freaky masks in the beginning of the movie. So there is a mood here established, not just... (laughs) With that intro, I thought it was going to be George Romero's take on the stage production of Cats. (laughs) And you also have to remember, we track back to, we talked of the angry new wave and the sort of fresh cinematic new wave. This is still a Stones Stones throw away from angry Hong Kong cinema. But you have to also understand, and you know this, Tom, Cinema City had their hands in many moods and movies, and they broke out mostly through light fare, like Aces Go Places. So they're not doing a Choi Hak, don't play with fire type of time here. But uh, it's compelling mood. And when it switches to when we see the whole family interacting together, when Alan Tan comes home, we got Bill Tung there. I don't know if you agree with this or not, but there was the moment where the movie could have gone all banana peel jokes on us. But it's just, it doesn't really, it just switches to the family hanging out. And I've, I appreciated that, that it doesn't go with like every damn martial arts comedy does. Uh, moody set up and then cut to the stupid hero. Yeah, maybe a bit more Bill Tung would have been would have been nice as well. I think he's severely severely underused in the film. But yeah, we only get him kind of now, like at the like you're saying at the intro and then towards the back end. Maybe you could have need some more character interaction instead of the whole thing kind of being put on Tam's shoulder for the most part. Because but is it terribly broad? Do you think does it switch from moody to it terribly broad, or do you think it's real? I, I think it's real in a little bit. I actually. agree with you, mate. Yeah, there's nothing there's nothing broad broad about it really. Um, it's all quite in terms of you know in terms of yeah the, the actual interaction the drama it never goes into kind of big big comedy it's always quite you know underplayed um, but I think yeah Joyce Joyce and I should uh, Joyce and I uh, should Sean, just not good for me in it at all I don't know what it is I don't know whether she just needed someone maybe with a bit more sass or you know a bit more I don't know kind of it, it just didn't the kind of interest with her and and Tam's kind of obsession with her I, I think doesn't really work for me and that might be just because they've got no chemistry at all it just wasn't believable but I just don't know whether she's a great actress to be honest for me just at times I really felt a bit like "Mm." I honestly thought she might have been a part of the film but not the actual main part of the film so when she did become a main character I was a bit like yeah I'm not really not really getting this not really getting this kind of relationship so and I think about halfway you know I was starting to get Bored, and I don't want to lay the blame on Tam, on Team Tam. I do, <laughs> dude. He is lumbered with some flat material, and he's not given a lot to work with, really. But maybe a different actor could have kept the energy up a little bit better. He's Someone interchangeable, else. like you read about. I mean, he he's not he's not that good. Here, here you go. We'll push you into the movie, kid. And like, oh, I'm a mouse insurance salesman. Okay. So I mean, he's. Uh, he's he, I, I'm not Team Tam on this one, definitely not, because he doesn't uh, bring anything worth no. remembering. Uh, g- going back a little bit to the whole family sequence, which I enjoy. I mean, they obviously being Bill Tung is there, so I thought like, hey, it's a David Chang movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, having flashbacks. <laughs> but uh, they they cut to the men obviously watching horse racing. You can't have a Bill Tung movie without any um, reference to horse racing. Maybe the police story movies are the only ones where he wasn't allowed to 
either have a horse or watch horse racing. <laughs> you always got to get the horse in. Yeah. yeah, but it was his life passion, obviously. But as I said, it's not the usual dopey, cut from moody to light comedy uh, banter. It just kind of is. Uh, they, the family interact, they rib each other. There's some pretty risque stuff here because the kid puts like a VHS tape in, in his room and that VHS tape plays on the, um, on the TV in the living room. And you see, you hear moaning and you see a boob. Because uh, there's porn on that tape. So I thought, like, whoa, pretty risque. It actually stays there for a good one, two seconds, the boob on the TV. Yeah, it was a good gag. I thought it was going to go, but again, when it started, I thought it was going to go into more broad humor. And it didn't. It just kind of stopped. You know what I mean? It was like, it's kind of funny, but they don't really milk it for its worth. And I think I have to play devil's advocate and say, maybe it could have done with some more kind of humor in that direction to, to spice things up a bit because it is so it is so flat for the rest of the film but yeah I, to, to, you know while the video's playing the the ladies are in the bedroom but playing a bit of atari <laughs> the middle-aged ladies are enjoying it i thought that was wonderful to see them like and now i know what the kids uh why the kids like this stuff it was nice yeah i think it was either 2600 or 5200 i would like some clarification on that if there's anyone who's seen the film and can clarify on that because uh I would, uh, yeah, that was a good, good spot. It's good, good, good kind of. Good. It definitely set the uh, the tone of the decade and, and where we were, and it was nice. And even if you look at the movie uh, again, Long Po Chi had a hand in directing some of it. I mean, in 1982, he did this movie called He Lives by Night, which is Jallo esque in certain sequences, uh, and also he's a comedy. So it's territory he's been shooting before, and there 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 is some moody stuff here, as we said. I don't get shit your pants like scared of scenes involving Ouija boards and things like that. Uh, but it is the decade of it, I suppose, even though they're still making those damn movies. But uh, it, it's it's a little bit of a nostalgic feeling, I guess, when Hong Kong really throws visually and orally, meaning on the soundtrack, everything at us. They're not um, doing regular jump scares. It's just sort of loud. <laughs> Hong Kong cinema at one point just cranked up the volume. And that's that's sort of nostalgic in a nostalgic fashion, kind of uh, something I like, uh, even in a, a scene like that where because they, I, I like that setup though, where because she has accidentally fallen off the roof, they start playing with the Ouija board, and she is communicating through it. And I thought that was a decent enough. Ah, oh, she's just died. She's communicating fro- through it. Like, okay, that's a c- cool setup. And you're playing with horror, uh, pl- horror um, cliches and tropes, but you're doing it through loud sound design, not booze. And mm. that tone was welcome. Again, it's the setup for the first and the first half largely works okay, but then it derails as we as we will talk about. I I I love that, but I also love the little cheeky gag because the kid, uh, the ten year old brother involves all different kinds of people like put your put your fingers on the plate and uh, it'll move around and spell out words and one of the guys cheekily puts up his middle finger and then <laughs> puts that on the bowl like, this uh, guy he's a funny guy he's so a funny guy i thought that was like a, what a lad he's a rebel proper rebel yeah <laughs> So yeah, and even like stuff, um, little minor bits, like uh, Alan Tam is at this uh, elevator and you hear like a huge ding because obviously it's arriving and the cut, it, it cuts to the elevator light being red and lighting up and it sounds lame. But those intense moments that get there in a fast manner through cuts, uh, possibly hinting at something supernatural, not at all bad. And even the manifestation of 
possible manifestation of uh, Joyce Knight's character happening whenever there's uh, soap bubbles in in the air. I thought, ah, not bad. But then you have to build on that setup, and that's where things derail after that. So I thought, leading up to it, before we get the romantic interaction, not bad at all. I like some of the mood here. I agree, build-up's good, but it just doesn't build up to anything, to be honest. And then I think it really picks up towards the end again, like a bit. So it's mm, good start, good end, but the middle, a lot to be desired. But I do like on a positive note um, that Alan Tam has clearly been to Ikea because uh, his flat is is looking good. So I definitely give the film half a star for that, for the uh, for the decor. As you were saying, saying with the, with the build-up, I think, to be honest, the plot solved like an hour in. And it just drags on from there. So I think it's the same curse as the previous, uh, well, the, the the two films after this, uh, Ring, Ringo's two films after this. It, it just, like, the, the, the plot's kind of solved. The culmination of what's been going on um, happens. And then it just kind of drags on. It just goes from there. It's like, where is this going? I agree, because it, it introduces an element late as a final real danger. But, but yeah, yeah, I, I, you're very right. It, it, it is solved, and then there's some good times, and then there's some bad times by the end. So Padding, it feels like. Oh, that that structure is a problem, I agree. Mm. And Celia Yip's so annoying in it. I know she, she... I love her, and I hate her in this role. She's so miscast, man. I mean, yeah. I don't want to see her be a nagging, horrible... Don't. But uh, girlfriend, like you have a beer belly, you drink orange juice, motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, it's horrible. Put that beer away before your girlfriend comes. It's just, it's just really like I hate see. I know she, she's supposed to be that character. I do despise her in the role. Like you know, it's like oh, look at you know, it's like it's it's kind of. I know how it's you know you're supposed to feel like with her character, but yeah, it's it's not very nice to see her in the role. I didn't think they needed to make her this much unsympathetic like it we could have been get it to be sympathetic as well with the situation that alan's in and with him maybe falling in love with the ghost it could have been interesting to see that side of it instead it kind of puts the whole emphasis on the relationship with the ghost and puts her in such a position that you kind of hate, hate her anyway so it's like there's no real you know there's no real love triangle there or there's no real kind of you know arguments there it just kind of goes you're kind of happy to see her leave the film which is a bit you know, which is not very nice. So no, so, so I think the the the, the writing is too uh, for a woman is way too lazy there. The, you know, it's uh, it's not in a hurry to bring Joyce before Alan, so to say. But but it's all also standard. But for the first half again, I'm still on that uh, all standard and bearable Hong Kong cinema with dips into the supernatural that might because you don't know because the movie's not finished. It might spark interest in what is supposed to be 90 minutes of escapism. It's not supposed to be a life-altering experience. But but it really that doesn't complete those goals as we've established. And I, I love that there's a nice Hong Kong feel too, where, you know, when uh, Ringo Lam or Lung Po Chi uh, shoots, uh, you know, in these small narrow stairways. They shoot on rooftops that have all those uh, antennas up there. That uh, it's usually that way on Hong Kong rooftops in the in the eighties. Everybody getting their everybody's getting their TV reception, and there's even some you don't know by this point if she's a vengeful ghost because she essentially makes Alan Tan fall off the roof, you know. And mm. uh, so you don't know if she's now this vengeful ghost. And that was a nice angle. It doesn't go there, but I I was curious enough still also highlights and tells okay that's that's pretty damn clever there's there is a jump scare here but a jump scare deception as the annoying little brother 
has blown up a photo of Joyce Nye, lit that up in green, and then as Alan Tam enters the room, he goes, Boo, she's here, and then it's, it's just him. So that shows the movie being aware of conventions. I don't think that is clever. The, the, the idea of environments, like objects present at death, being a sign of manifestation is also interesting. That's actually not very frequently used, but... And normally you had ghosts manifest themselves through animation, people yelling, and then there's uh, smoke machines and wind machines. But we come back to the fact that you established that, um, even though this is before Chinese ghost story, but Joyce Nye is no Joey Wong in terms of making her presence felt. Um. Maybe because it, she needs to be kind of a bit more not of this world and a bit more kind of interesting and kind of captivating and more of kind of a sensual kind of ghost, like for him to kind of really be under the spell. And it just kind of felt like there wasn't that. She was just kind of like an ordinary girl. She just happens to be a ghost, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that was their idea, but it, it didn't really pan out for her. They, they, they didn't decide to let, let's... Um, bring her back but she's all like bruised up because she fell or whatever so she's got blood all over her face like they didn't try that idea but but you're right it's sort of it doesn't um it doesn't make that a ghostly presence necessarily by having her, her just be natural and playful and uh, i i know the point where it starts to sort of not ful- fulfill its promises and it's during one of the sequences where Alan Tam is scared of her and stuff. And she touches him and he starts acting like, oh my god, it's so cold, it's so freezing. And he just overplays that like crazy. Mm. And then I realized that subsequent movies have shown Alan Tam is not a very good comic presence. It certainly shows here. Him acting broad is some of the things I dislike heavily about him. In subsequent movies, some of them, it works. But here it's just... Uh, it's it's the reason why I think he, he can kind of suck the life out of him, out of movies sometimes. Uh. I I still think it's fifty fifty here with him. It's like you know I don't know whether a better performer could have made had done something better with the material, or whether it's just you know he is lumbered with with kind of not very interesting things to do. His presence and charisma is I think is seriously lacking at this point. He looks too young, really, for it, it, it's yeah, it's 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 true. At this time I think they're just struggling with, with really what to do with him, to be honest. A lot of filmmakers. There's some light touches here in the second half that's uh, amusing that doesn't involve either of uh, these two that never achieve romantic com- uh, chemistry. Philip Chan, I think, is awesome. <laughs> yeah, there's, he gets some good scenes. He gets some good scenes. I never have have you ever seen Philip Chan act silly like this? Trying, trying to think. When I was watching it as well, I was kind of trying to think of something because he's normally obviously like the 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 superintendent or you know the inspector, the kind of serious ow, guy. Is this a fucking order? Like, like, <laughs> like hard boiled uh, Philip Chan. Well, yeah. So he, he's kind of always like that. But yeah, it was kind of interesting to to see him a bit different. And they're saying, "Oh, I, I love prostitutes." And uh... well, well, set up some context here. Uh, he's on a TV panel, and uh, I, in order to sort of get him to. Uh, pay out the insurance they she uh she doesn't possess him but like uh, he slaps his back and he becomes uh uh he, he goes into me myself and irene mode i suppose and becomes the ghost edition of me myself and irene right so so he sits there and he tries to condemn prostitution and stuff like that and then he gets a little tap and boing, and he he says way different things way worse things and in his normal mode mode he says how dare you say prostitute uh, prostitutes ding and then he sits, I love where he sits, he takes his foot up, puts it on the stool, like, yeah, how relaxed. dare you say prostitutes? 
they're called whores. <laughs> and he's so happy to say that. He's so happy. It's a good individual scene, but I think the problem with that is, again, in the context of the film, they don't set up rules for what she can kind of do and yeah. what she can't do. So when it does come, it's like, okay, so she can do this. What else can she do? It's like, why is she getting him to do this when she could have just taken him under a spell and get him to sign off the insurance money? Do you know what I mean? It's like, why is she doing it publicly? Maybe it's revenge, but it's, yeah, I don't think it's, from the very start, there's no real rule set up with what she can and what she can't do, so it's a bit loosey-goosey and doesn't really work, but in itself, it's, it's, it's you know, it's it's good and it's good to see, uh, yeah, good to see uh, Philip Chan <laughs> in, in that kind of context. I thoroughly agree. I mean, the broad the broader the interaction becomes between Anna Tam and Joyce and I, it reveals the biggest weakness. Like, there you really see the lack of chemistry because they're they're not cute together they're not fun together you don't when he's talking to the air obviously she's not there he can only see her and there's other people there who thinks um he's talking to them that's not inspired scenarios and it's just flat and he just loses steam once everything is established and as you said when everything's solved as well but by that point it thinks he can afford to just do comedic shtick man because they're in love and they have fun. Like, no, it, you, you, you're you not breaking through with that. Not at all. It falls flat. Yeah, it falls through. And I think at the end you get the kind of tax on, you know, you get the kind of exorcism or, you know, the kind of... Oh, you got to establish who's the, uh, not the Lam Ching Ying type, but obviously who's the uh, who's the badass looking... Uh... Oh, of course, yeah, Tim, Tim Feng comes in. Um, and it's nice, it's nice to see him. Nice to see him, like, pop up kind of in this role. But again, like, so I unnecessary kind of good good in its kind of uh you know individual scenes but yeah it's it's a bit unnecessary so it's yeah it's tim feng and, and lung ting sang as, as the assistant and they kind of come in a bit of comedic stick together um but he looks badass with that he does he does a badass beard, like, and, uh, there's better material for him though with it it's like just a kind of generic kind of role but it's good scene good scene pop up but then always love chen feng better in villainous roles i mean always, everybody yeah. saw him early on in fist of fury yeah playing the uh well he's the, the elder of the school back then but the master has died but he, he's the elder of the school then but if you see him in King Boxer and a variety of uh, Shaw Brothers villain roles, he's um, absolutely looks that part. Um, so I always enjoy Chen Feng. But I, I absolutely agree. I mean, we're in the area of the movie where the notion of men and ghosts and a romance that that can't be. So that's we know it's not going to go on that path or whatever. But the, the problem also is that the, at best, what they've established between Alan Tam and Joyce and I is that they're buddies. Mm, that's what I feel. It's definitely like a friendship rather than a kind of romantic. It's hard to really get get kind of wrapped up in it, especially during the end with what happens. It's kind of very hard to get wrapped up in the kind of drama around it. It's like, mm, you know, I, I don't really kind of not feeling anything towards this. It's a bit... And, 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 and technically, you're right. I mean, it, it's sort of as sequences that they're pretty strong with. You have... Um, the dance sequence has come back, so you're into cut with that. I still, I still don't know what that dance was about, to be honest. I don't know but, uh, what's going on, yeah, but it's it was good. Whatever it was, it was good. I would definitely like to see a production of that at some point. <laughs> the special effects are fun by this point, you know, as the environment starts to get tear up. It's and, pretty uh, intense, yeah, yeah. The ending's pretty with some good visuals, some some very good visuals. And like the the candles that melt uh, like ice cream in front of Chen Feng at his altar. So yes, it's a life on the line vibe that works fairly well through effects and 
and the serious nature of it, but we have no investment in it, so we're just looking at it as a sequence, as you've said. So it certainly does not at all earn being a downer and a tragedy by the end. It's just it's sort of mild genre cool, and but uh, as a movie, as a movie we cared for and characters we cared for, there, there's literally nothing there um, when all is said and done. So uh, there, there, there is sort of a reason why I've never really returned to this until now because it never really stuck with me and. Uh, uh, I, I know I know when I thought of it, I think there were some special effects and stuff in it, maybe. Yeah, I think I think, you know, it's kind of like I know it's it's clearly why when people speak about me and they speak about that certain part of his career in the late 80s, you know, early 90s, where he really kind of came with his own voice, because I think the stuff that does lack that, you know, penchant for greenness and that kind of artistic vision is really not great. And I, I know why it's not really kind of spoke about, I think. In general, it's quite clearly a first-time filmmaker's effort, and you know Ringo hasn't yet found his voice, but he will shortly after his first cover. It's just very anonymous uh, direction-wise, and and really just lacks a lacks a, a spark. Um, some good individual scenes, but pff, on the whole, overall, yeah, it's, it doesn't really kind of hold up. Let, I mean, especially next to kind of his later stuff. Uh, right on. Any other notes you want to share? No, mate. That's that's about everything. That's it for me as well. So we'll uh, we'll uh, leave uh, Sprit the more in the past, and uh, but we, we'll talk uh, as for av- uh, the av- availability first of all. And uh, it was once available on DVD through Delta Mac, and there was also a restored version on DVD from Fortune Star. Both of them are now listed as out of print or out of stock, but hopefully used copies are floating around. And it doesn't seem like Fortune Star issued one of their upscales Blu-ray uh, Blu-rays of this either. No, not when you say restored, is it just you mean they're like digitally, or you mean there's actually scenes? No, they, no, they they cleaned up the print. It, it was touted as digitally restored version, so it's one of the ones they picked uh, for for that. They didn't do that for all of the old uh, Delta Mac and Joy Sales uh, discs. So have you? It was picked for picked for restoration because of the time, I guess. But well, it's important. I think you know. Either way, it's good that historically it's recognized you know as you know having its place in hong kong cinema history you know especially with being ringo's first film it's good that it's given you know we might not like it a whole lot but it's good that it's given that treatment i think yeah i wouldn't blame people for like not venturing into it of course but if you're interested in in following it from uh, from movie one then then, then certainly do so it's a fairly easy to get through i think it's at least good to see where he started as a filmmaker but anyway, next time, uh, Ringo Lam jumps on board the Prophet Juggernaut as his places and delivers darker-tinted material, considering the series we're talking of here. In, in all simplicity, join us next episode where we review Ace's Go Places 4. A.K.A. Carmacker on Fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the inspiration came from. I like setting people on fire. I'm going to name the movies at least. If I can't do it in the movies, it's going to be in the title at least. Like... Uh, so he's doing sky on fire, so now he's like, Mars on fire, space on fire, everything's on fire. <laughs> Fuck you, everybody, everything's on fire. All right, buddy, let's, uh, let's uh, conclude this one then. And uh, this has been the director's series on the Podcast on Fire Network. We are located on podcastonfire.com. Check out uh, all the other shows we have. You can make a variety of choices over there, depending on what kind of cinema you like. And we also do bonus episodes every now and again. Email us, uh, what's your favorite Ringo Lamb movie? Let us know. 
podcastonfire.googlemail.com. You can let us know on social media as well. Follow the buttons to our Facebook and Twitter presence. Uh, click the iTunes button to subscribe to our feed. And click the Stitcher Radio button to uh, stream us either on their website or download the free apps on the Apple App Store and Google Play. And uh, check out my writing of a variety of Hong Kong and Taiwanese uh, genre movies and some sleaze and ninjas over there as well. So goodreviews.com. I do video reviews over at sleazykvideo.com and my Twitter handle is at so good reviews. Anything else you want to conclude with, Tom? Plugwise or not plugwise? No, that's about it, man. Uh, check out, you know, obviously continuing kind of this series in the, in the near future back on board with that back in the saddle feels good to be back at home and uh check for hopefully a bit of writing towards towards the new year into the new year so uh yeah life's a lot more relaxed uh, at, at the moment so that makes a lot more time for for writing and reviewing which is which is makes me happy and in this series we're gonna we've obviously covered some ring of moves before so we aim to have we'll be filling in the gaps exactly exactly what we're doing here but we aim to have one main review and two quick reviews i might as well tease you all what's coming up aside from aces go places four we'll have a, just a brief look back on city on fire and wild search just to establish their opinions but the main quick reviews will be for undeclared war and touch and go that doesn't mean we've skipped School on Fire. It does because we are still reviewing Aces Go Places 4 from 1986. So School of Fire will follow uh, as it's a 1988 movie and Prison on Fire obviously too. So we're jumping a little bit back and forth but uh, that way we'll get through uh, the filmography quite uh, quickly and up to key points that might be uh, of more interest. And Touch and Go by the way is Ringo Lamb's movie with Samo. But anyway, thank you very much Tom for rejoining me for the series and looking forward to the next time we do the director series. So me too man, of course, no worries. Good to be back. Thank you very much, and uh, well, welcome back, and uh, thank you very much for participating. And therefore, I've been Kenobi, and with me was Tom KW. Say goodbye, buddy, for the first time in uh, a long time. Bye bye for the first time in a long time. Some